travel, it's one of life's greatest pleasures. When we journey abroad, we discover new places and meet fascinating people, but we also gain perspective and take on a wider view of the world around us. That was Trevor Ranges, and I'm Scott Coates. After more than 25 years living and working in Asia, we've developed an amazing network of interesting characters throughout the region. Talk Travel Asia is our way of sharing them with you. Plug in and get connected to hot tips, interesting perspectives, and expert travel advice as we cultivate travel insight through intelligent conversation. Welcome to Talk Travel Asia. This is Trevor Ranges. Uh, today we're going to be talking about Kolkata, India with Tom Vader. Kolkata, also known as Kolkata, is the capital of the Indian state of West Bengal. According to Wikipedia, it is the seventh most populous city in India, with a population of nearly 5 million people in the city proper, and a suburban population that brings the total to over 14 million, making it the third most populous area in India. Located on the east bank of the Huli River and featuring India's oldest operating port, Calcutta lies approximately 80 meters west of the Bangladeshi border. Nicknamed the City of Joy, Kolkata is the principal commercial, cultural, and educational center of East India and is considered the, quote, cultural capital of India. As six Nobel laureates have been associated with the area, it is no surprise that our guest today finds it a great place to inspire his writing. But before we bring our guest in to talk, uh, this is Trevor Ranges, as mentioned in Phnom Penh, Cambodia, and as always, I'm with Hey, I'm Scott Coates in Bangkok, Thailand, man. And I love bloopers. And in the intro, you said it's 80 meters oh, from yeah. the bank. Yeah, I'm not, so, I'm not so good with that metric system, you know. But India is a big country. And to be the third largest city in India is a big deal. You know? It's huge. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, have you ever been to India? No, you know, I, I had been invited to uh, my friend Shreya's wedding in Chennai many years ago, but I was living in Bali and it was difficult to get a visa. But from what I understand now, it's much easier to get a visa and AirAsia flies there. So there's almost no excuse to go now, but it's such a big country, I don't even know where to begin. So I'm glad that we're doing some destinations that we haven't traveled to and having people on the show that know a lot about these places. So maybe uh, Tom will inspire me today to visit Calcutta sometime. Yeah, that's a neat thing about what we're calling season three here after our hiatus is uh, we're going to do a lot of episodes on places we don't really know about. We haven't really been. I've been to Mumbai twice, once to update a guide map and another time to take a course about happiness with the people oh. from Zappos. But uh, hey, man, some people have asked, what have you been doing in your hiatus so uh since we had our last episode in may 2019 where have you been in that time where have you traveled to yeah it's basically like a year since we've had the show yeah over a year uh, i know so uh you know I, I i'm in cambodia now and i've been living and working here for about two years and i travel a bit not as much uh maybe outside of cambodia as i used to mm -hmm. but uh i did go to the east coast of the united states last summer um it was the first time that i'd been on the east coast in maybe 10 years okay uh, i went to the jersey shore for the fourth of july and right. i saw some of my old childhood friends because i spent every summer 
um, of the first 25 years of my life, maybe at the Jersey Shore. Okay. Um, so that was great. And I went up into Manhattan for a few nights and I stayed at the standard hotels there. Ah. And, uh, went out and partied with my sister right. and, and saw my friend Sean and uh, had a great time in, in New York City. I, I love the city. I love, uh, I love the Jersey Shore. Of course, I swung by Hawaii on my way to and from the East Coast in Cambodia. So Hawaii was always awesome and it was summer and my parents live in town and I got some south swells and, you know, it's always great when I get to get in the water and do some surfing. So great East Coast trip uh, last summer. Where have you been in the past year? Yeah, you know, you put this in our show notes and I thought, oh, I haven't been that many places. And I actually opened my Apple photos and went back here and I've been a lot of places. I went to Koh Phayam, Thailand, an island off the uh, West Coast near Renong. That's on Somewhat Secret Beaches episode. Yeah, exactly. And I got that off my list. It was incredible. Might head down there again soon. Did Southern Cambodia being Kap Kampot and Rong with my parents and wife over December 2019 went to Bali for our annual general meeting for a company I went to Tokyo for work and then I went up uh, to Nagano area went mountain biking and spent a day in Matsumoto going to some galleries I went to Ho Chi Minh City for work I went to Singapore for Chinese New Year. I went to Ratchaburi in eastern Thailand, where I'd never actually been. I went to Georgia, Armenia, and Azerbaijan with my dad. And I ran a half marathon in Luang Prabang, Laos. So, man, I've wow. actually been quite a few spots doing That's amazing. Yeah. yeah, but you didn't go to New Jersey. I know? did not so, get to the Jersey uh, Shore and see really any went, jabronis. really went nowhere. <laughs> Zero jabronis on my entire trips. Yeah, no, that's pretty awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and and apparently neither of us went to India, but that's pretty cool that, that you went to Mumbai twice before. I didn't I did. know about that happiness yeah. uh, thing that you did with Zappos. I'd like to hear about that sometime. Yeah, uh, well. You know, I've never been to India. Like, I, I, I really am upset that I didn't go to Shreya's wedding just because if you're going to go to India, I imagine going to an Indian wedding would be one of the, the most amazing things that you could do. Yeah. Um, the food, of course, everybody's familiar with Indian food, so I imagine that's got to be amazing. But it's such a big country, you know, like Calcutta or Mumbai or, you know, Darjeeling. Like, it, it, it's so disparate, I imagine, that, like, it, it would almost be like these are each their own countries within this giant country that, that is India. So, you know, like, I, I'm curious to hear uh, what, what Tom's got to share with us today. Yeah, and just before we get to that, uh, all of you that are listening and enjoying, uh, please think about helping us out to keep this going because Trevor and I pay for this ourselves. We do it out of the kindness of our heart and our love for travel. Go to patreon.com, search for Talk Travel Asia, and you can sponsor us from $1 a month or up, hopefully more than that. But a big shout out to a long, long, long term supporter, Austin Clinton. Thanks so much, Austin, and to everybody else who helps keep the show going. So go to Patreon, give us a little financial love, and let's bring in our guest. Okay, today's guest, Tom Vodder, is making his second appearance on the show. Tom was on episode 18, Travel Writing with Tom Vodder. I had the pleasure of meeting Tom in Krache, Cambodia when I was researching my book about Cambodia, and he was researching the Moon Travel Guidebook to Cambodia, which is now offered as the Handbook to Angkor Wat, Siem Reap, and Phnom Penh. Otherwise, Tom is a writer and publisher working predominantly in Asia. He has written for the Wall Street Journal, The Times, The Guardian, The Daily Telegraph, and a number of other publications. Tom is also the co-author of several documentary 
screenplays, most notably The Most Secret Place on Earth, a feature on the CIA's covert war in the 1960s Laos, and he has published several nonfiction books, including the highly acclaimed Sacred Skin, which is about tattoos. He has published several novels, including two with Crime Wave Press, a Hong Kong-based crime fiction imprint of which he is the co-owner. Yeah, my name is Tom Vater. I'm a German writer. I've been in Asia for more than 20 years. I write fiction and non-fiction. I write a lot of journalism. I've, I'm the author of around 20 books, I think. I've um, co-written several screenplays for documentaries that have been broadcast uh, around the world on television. I live in Bangkok. Uh, my main clients at the moment are the Daily Telegraph in the UK, the Nikkei Asian Review. And um, as I said, uh, and I also own, co-own uh, a publishing house called Crime Wave Press, which publishes uh, crime fiction from around the world with a special eye on Asia. We've published uh, 34 novels to date. Uh, both as Kindle ebooks and prints. And yeah, so I'm incredibly busy. I'm on the road all the time. Uh, but I'm based, I've been based in Bangkok for the last 15 years. That's cool, Tom. And I was saying right before we started recording, I read your book, The Devil's Road to Kathmandu. And uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun, really good. So I encourage our listeners to get into that. Thank you very much. Um, the Devil's Road to Kathmandu is actually based on my travel experiences uh, in the 1990s when I first came to Asia. In the mid-90s, I spent six months in Kathmandu and then went back overland from Kathmandu all the way to Europe through um, India, Pakistan and Iran and Turkey. And, um, and then I, I met uh, a bunch of older travelers who'd done that route in the 1970s several times. So the old hippie trail. And um, I was actually at a birthday party of one of those guys, and they had a little reunion, three or four people who'd done that journey 40 years before, and for the first time in their lives, they were reuniting and they were talking about it. And that gave me the initial idea to write a book about three, four guys who set off in a van from London, they drive to Kathmandu, and on the way, something goes horribly wrong. And then 25 years later, the, the three guys get an email asking them to come back to Kathmandu to resolve what happened years and years before. So that was most of that book, I would say, was was based on the accounts of those people and on my own experiences uh, overland, crossing from Asia to, to Europe overland in 1998. I've read the book as well. I, I don't know whether I read it before then or after then, but uh, you got two fans here already, Tom. Wow, you know, well, that's very interesting. They say that you should write what you know, and uh, having spent a lot of time in Asia, it seems that you do know a lot about the, the cultures that you visit and you write about. Uh, you mentioned before the show when you were speaking with us that you've been to India every year since 1993 and have worked there Thank extensively. Thank you very much. So um, when the did Devil's you first Road go to Kathmandu is actually based on, I think I was first in Calcutta in the late 90s, uh, maybe 1997. Um, at that time, I think, yes, I was there in 1997 because I was on, on my way to the Andaman Islands. The Andaman Islands are a small archipelago mm. between uh, India and Burma and the Bay of Bengal. And at that time, I uh, was receiving a grant from the British Library to record the music of indigenous people around Asia and document disappearing musical heritage. And so I went to the Andamans in order to try and um, record 
the music of the um, original indigenous inhabitants uh, of the Andaman Islands who who are very remote and very very hard to get to because the the Indian government shields these people from outside visitors but in the end I did succeed and I recorded some of their songs it was a a really interesting experience I got arrested and then I got let go and then I had the opportunity to do some recordings and the whole trip to the Andaman Islands in the 90s was it was a real adventure on a huge boat with 2,000 people on it basically settlers who were sent out there on a one-way ticket to start a new life and um, of course those settlers then slowly displaced all the local people whose numbers had already been decimated by the British colonial colonial powers because the Andaman Islands originally served as a huge prison uh, which was architecturally based on Pentonville prison in the UK uh, where they put um, lots and lots of the um, political protesters and dissidents um, because it was seen as a place that you could not escape from full of malaria lots of sharks in the water so once you were there no one ever came out again that's far and i'm looking at a map here from sorry you took a boat from calcutta to the andaman islands that's correct wow. yeah it's that's a three-day journey <laughs> and you're on a boat with three thousand people it's hot as hell um I've, I've never seen fans so big, I mean, huge, huge fans down in these steel dormitories in the bowels of the ship. But I felt so um, claustrophobic down there that I slept on deck the entire time. We could do, a, we could do an episode about the Andaman Islands there. <laughs> yeah, you've given us, uh, you're going to be on the show a third time because you've just given us that juice there. So look, like Calcutta, Trevor and I were talking before we recorded with you. We consider ourselves relatively worldly, but we both had to admit to one another, didn't actually know where in India Calcutta was until we sort of looked today. So tell us, what does Calcutta look like and what keeps you going back again and again? Calcutta is in the far east of India. And between um, the time when the British basically first appeared in the 1690s, and the time in the early 20th century when the uh, British Indian Empire's capital was moved from Calcutta to Delhi, Calcutta was the second most economically most important city in the world. It was very, very rich. It was the trading point. It was the place where the British sucked out all the raw materials out of India and sent them back to the UK. So it had enormous economic strategic importance. Now, it's also just two and a half hours flight from Bangkok today. It's really, really close. Um, and it's really easy to get there because you can get an e-visa for India now for up to a year or even five years. So there's really no excuse for people living in Southeast Asia not to go there. It is an incredibly beautiful city. It is the city with the largest number of colonial era buildings anywhere I've ever seen. Maybe Havana has more or maybe some other place in South America, but in Asia um, you will not find another city center that is so homogenous in the sense that the, the main buildings in, in the city center, they're all built in the 17th, 18th, 19th, early 20th century. And so um, half of those are built by the British themselves. So we're looking at the British architecture from that period. In fact, um, the post office in Calcutta is modeled on St. Paul's in uh, London. 
in the larger square. In Calcutta, there is a, a church, which is an exact replica of St. Martin's in the Fields, which is a famous church in Trafalgar Square in London. So you have all these old British buildings, and amongst them, you have the uh, palaces and townhouses of the Bengali traders that got rich off the backs of the British. So basically, the the people who's the the Indians who the upper caste Indians who sold their own people to the British and exploited their own people to make a buck to get the resources out, they built themselves huge, huge, enormous palaces. And um, at that time, Calcutta was, um, and I'm saying this with a straight face, was divided into white town and black town. So in white town, the mm -hmm. British dominated, and in black town, it was these traders hmm. that built their huge palaces, which are all there to this day. Some of them are crumbling, some of them are museums, some of them remain uh, private residences, some of them are accessible, some of them are not. But the thing is, the moment you you come out of the airport, you, you head into the city center, you get out of the taxi, and you start walking around, you are in an architectural wonderland. And because Calcutta, since World War II, so since British, since independence, basically, since the British were kicked out of India, um, the, of course, the city has been economically stagnating. And then in the in the 60s, it had a communist government, which um, also didn't in, exactly encourage the local economy. So today, the reason why this cityscape still exists is because there's no money to replace it. So many of these old British buildings are falling into the ground. But there's nothing new being built because there's absolutely no money for the moment. And so this is why there's this great homogeneity of style and architecture. And as I said, I think it's it's thousands of buildings, not just a handful. It's literally thousands. That's quite interesting because I know I mean, we both know that and lots of people know that India has this fascinating history. But then you go to cities like Bangkok and Thailand, which it's like a very modern city. So, I mean, I don't know how much our, our listeners know about Calcutta, but uh, that, that does sound cool that they have these old historical kind of buildings. Is it also modern at the same time? And, and what are some other differences or what other things make Calcutta distinctive compared to other cities, let's say like Mumbai? No, it's in that sense, it's not a modern city. It, ha it does have a very good underground system uh, and it's a very beautiful underground system. It's really, really nicely done. Um, and the traffic's definitely better in Bangkok because there's not as many private cars. They have, I don't know if you're familiar with these old ambassador cars they have in, in, in India. They're like a 50s style kind of taxi. And, and these are the taxis in Calcutta and they're all yellow. So they, they, they really contribute to the, uh, the visual kind of iconography of the, of the city. Yeah. Um, but it's also a walking city. Um, it's very safe. Okay. There's almost no crime against foreigners there. I mean, okay, you're in a crowd, you might get pickpocketed like everywhere else. But I walked around Calcutta at three in the morning. It's really not a problem. And in Delhi and Mumbai, it really can be a problem. So I would definitely say it's the safest large metropolis in India. But um, I wouldn't call it modern. And I would definitely say if you if you want to visit Calcutta, you will want to visit it for its past. Um, you're not going to visit it for McDonald's or any modern fast food outlets. They do exist, but they're so few and so tucked away. You're not going to find them. In fact, 
Old also of American fast food places are in the suburbs. They're not in the where the middle class people live. They're not in the city center. So the city center is really uh, one daba next to one cheap, simple restaurant next to the other. And um, of course, hygiene is more of an issue than it is in Bangkok. Uh, and then there's also the pavement dwellers. There's a lot of people that in Kakata that are homeless and they sleep at night on the pavements. There used to be more than half a million, but many of them have now been pushed out into villages outside the city. So there are fewer of those, but there's definitely a large mobile homeless population. I, I feel like certainly at night, it, it, it really reminds you of, let's say, the East End of London during the Jack the Ripper time. Ooh. It's kind of romantic in a dangerous kind of way, yeah? You're painting a really great picture, and I've never been interested in going there, but you're getting me there. So on that note, Tom, like, what are a few of the top must-see, must-do things in Calcutta for a visitor? In, there's a huge park called the Maidan, and in that park there, there is a, 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 an old British edifice called the Victoria Memorial. It's got a huge statue of Queen Victoria out front, and um, that has an, an incredible... Uh, museum that retells the colonial history from an Indian point of view and that is really really interesting for people from coming from Europe or perhaps from America because it's it's not hateful or discriminatory it just tells the facts of how the British exploited the place how many people they had executed who went to prison but also the newspapers that they started the the first printing press that they brought there um, the intellectual life they contributed to. So it's a, it's a fair view, but it is, um, it clearly shows that, that uh, colonial enterprises are entirely exploitative. So that's a really, really interesting place to go. There's also a place called the Marble Palace. Now the Marble Palace is a huge mansion from, uh, that was built in a sort of four, four fake Roman style with gigantic pillars by a Bengali trader who got rich of the British. And the mansion is now a museum and it contains all the, the junk that this man bought at, in the early 19th century. Um, sort of marble from Italy, vases from China, paintings from the UK, um, mirrors from Belgium, chandeliers from Belgium, you name it. I mean, whatever was tacky and expensive, 150 years ago that guy bought it and he's got it in this totally unordered collection in many many hmm. halls inside this palace and it's like a wonderland of of antique kitsch so and it's got a mini zoo with a garden so that is definitely uh, worth visiting as i said it's a walking city so when you go up to Blacktown, the former part where only Indian people lived, but which is also historic and full of old buildings, there along the, the Hooghly River, which runs through Calcutta, uh, there are the areas, areas of Giri Bazaar and Shoba Bazaar. These are old trading areas with trading houses and old mansions and palaces that reach all the way to the water's edge. And you can spend hours and hours there just going from tea shop to to little restaurant or sit by the river where there's always a festival or something going on. So it's really, really lively. And it's it's mm. small lanes of of not British style houses, but old hundred year old Bengali style houses. And the amazing thing is that um, Bengali people are really, really friendly. 
and most of them speak English, at least some English, and educated people speak fluent English, so it's also an incredibly easy city to get around. Um, the, the, the English is far better than in any Southeast Asian city, the English spoken. And of course all the signs are in English as well. So um, if you're ever stuck, people will go out of their way to, to walk you to the nearest train station or to walk you to the nearest taxi or the nearest bus stop. They're really, really super friendly. This is one thing I particularly like about West Bengal. Um, I think they're amongst the, the nicest people in India. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, that, 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 makes it, that makes it very tourist friendly, yeah? Yes, it does. But the curious thing is because it's got this reputation uh, because of, uh, well, because of the book, The City of Joy by Dominique Lapierre, uh, which was a huge bestseller in the 1980s and painted this this picture of uh, Calcutta being a, a city of pestilence and death. And then, of course, the work of Mother Teresa, who was there for many years. Uh, that's that's given the, the city a, a reputation, which is partly deserved, but not entirely deserved, uh, of, of a hellhole. And so, actually, Calcutta has less than 100 tourists arrival a day on average. It's, there are no tourists, very, very few. And those that do come, they're usually transiting. Um, a lot of Thai people go there and transit from there to Bodh Gaya, which is not very far away, which is uh, a Buddhist pilgrimage. Okay. I was going to ask you about. I was going to ask you about that in a minute. We'll, we'll get to the day trip destinations here in a second. But yeah, I just noticed actually while you were talking, I went to the AirAsia website, and you can get a return ticket from Bangkok to Kolkata for like a hundred and twenty dollars, like four thousand bucks. That's correct. So it yeah. seems like really, it seems really cheap and easy to get there. And then looking at a Google map, like it, it's on this river that we mentioned in the introduction. Um, and you're telling us that it has these really old um, and interesting buildings. And I, you know, now that you mentioned Mother Teresa, I'd never actually like put two and two together. I was like, yeah, that is where the Mother Teresa story, like that's where she she lived and stuff. So this seems like a, a really interesting city that, you know, we've all heard of before, but I, I don't think we ever really imagined before, you know? Now is a great time to visit Calcutta because Basically, the, the city has been stagnating under the communist government. And then eight years ago, the government changed. The, the current party that's running it now is called the TMC. They're kind of uh, the governor, the, the chief minister of West Bengal is a lady called Mamata Banerjee. She is so hard, she could probably put her head through a concrete wall and the wall would just collapse. She's really, really tough. And she has been making efforts to to help the most deprived people in the city. She's moved um, a lot of the homeless people out of the city center. She's turned some of the old British buildings into cultural sites, museums, galleries, uh, etc. So she's been making some inroads in, in improving the city, but she uses uh, what could only be described as mafia tactics. So there are some people who don't like her very much because she puts all her cronies in power and dirty deals and stuff. So the next election is in 2021. And as you might know, um, the national government in India is run by currently run by the BJP, which is a, a nationalist Hindu party um, that has been implicated in in violence against minorities across the country. Yeah, I could see some like, again, looking at the map and, and just seeing where in the country it's located, I guess there could be like a larger maybe Muslim minority in, in this part of India. 
Uh, 33% of people in Calcutta are Muslim. But again, that, that makes it interesting for the visitor if you have like this British history and it's a Hindu country and you have this Muslim minority. So you do kind of maybe get this interesting mix of people. So maybe moving away from politics a little bit, how about the food? I, I mean, India is such a big country and it's famous for its food, but I'm sure that there's different regional variations of the cuisine. What's the food like in, in Calcutta? The food is amazing, Trevor. It's really, really great. So... I should say my, my favorite dish is actually a dessert and it's called mishti dahi and it's a kind of yogurt and <laughs> it's very sweet and you get it in a clay pot and it's kind of the color of dirty concrete it doesn't it doesn't look very nice but it tastes like a dream it tastes amazing as i said it's quite sweet but it's it's when it's ice cold when it's cooled on a hot day it's 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 better than ice cream it's totally amazing every time i'm there I, I, every day i'll have that of course um, like everywhere else in india people sit on street corners all day long and drink chai um, and in calcutta what's really nice is that most of the chai stalls uh, still sell the chai i think probably all the chai stalls still sell the chai in the traditional clay pots so you order your chai you pay your 10 rupees and when you've finished your tea, you throw the pot in the street and it breaks and it's not used again, which keeps the, the pot men employed and keeps the plastic away. So that's a, a really fantastic thing that they're doing. The main kitchen is, called, is concerned. Uh, Bengalis eat a lot of fish because it's on the coast, but they also eat a lot of river fish, which they catch from the Hooghly or from ponds. And um, there's a there's a fast food dish in Calcutta called the Kati roll. This is like the the equivalent of the beef burger uh, for for Americans <clears throat> or fish and chips for the British. So the Kati roll is a, a slightly greasy paratha. You're familiar with paratha, perhaps it's an Indian bread um, and this is rolled like a kebab and it's got a filling of uh, of chicken that's been that's been grilled kebab style on a stick with lots of onions and lots of chili and a red fiery sauce. And uh, on request for people who really want a high cholesterol hit, they put a, a fried egg in there as well. Mm. You can even have it with double egg, um, but uh, I, I suspect that no one can really finish that. And um, there are in the city center, there are uh, several Kati roll spots, like places that are really famous. And at lunchtime in the early evenings, you get queues around the block there. Like the, the office workers, they stand there and they're waiting patiently for their Kati roll before they go back to work. Hmm. So, Tom, your new novel is set in three different time periods. We're obviously jumping here a lot, but you're a writer. And you, you told us a bit about it before we talked. And, and one part is set in 1999, the next part in 2019, then 2039. First, can you tell us a bit about the books, the novellas, and then why were you wanting to think about what Kolkata would be like in 2039? Well, I mean, the Goethe Institute invited me as part of this project, and I had eight weeks to, to, to write. And I felt that that is obviously not enough time to write a novel. So I, and I wanted to write something that I could complete in that time. Uh, so I decided on these three novellas, and I had this idea for quite a while of of um, having um, a relationship between two people, uh, a British guy who comes to Calcutta in 1999 as a backpacker and then okay. who returns to 
Calcutta as a sort of psychological consultant in 2019. And in 1999, he, his roommate in the hotel where he stayed in becomes involved in a murder mystery. So he's then picked up by the police to help solve that. And uh, it's a young policewoman who is put onto this case and they solve the case together, this first story. And then pretty much by coincidence, he comes back 20 years later in 2019, i.e. now, um, to, uh, because uh, he, he gets the job to try and repatriate uh, a young British guy who's put it into his head that he's a sadhu in Calcutta, so a, an Indian ascetic holy man, and who started a religious cult with some success, I should say, mm -hmm. which is not so unusual in India. And he keeps making wild promises to his devotees. He keeps okay. telling them that um, Mother Teresa hid lots of the donation, lots of the donations that she got over the years somewhere, and that he knows and that he gets to know through visions where this money is hidden. So as long he as he keeps telling people that, he gets more and more followers because everybody wants to find Mother Teresa's treasure. And again, he gets he gets to get yes, whether that exists or not is an open question. Some people say that she really did fiddle the books and made loads of money disappear, but we don't know that. There are stories that she that she took loads of donations back to the Vatican and they disappeared there, but none of this is proven. It was just a nice story that I picked up on. And again, because there's a murder involved, uh, my British character, who's now in his 40s, so in the first story he's in his 20s, in the first, second story he's in his 40s, he meets this police lady again. And there's kind of a thing going on between the two, but this being India and people being very conservative, the, whatever is between them is never consummated. And by the time he returns to Calcutta and they're both in their 40s, she's married to someone. So. So, as I said, it's not consummated, but there is this kind of electric tension between them. And eventually they resolve the case with the with the British upper class sadhu. And he goes, he has to go back to the UK. And then in 2039, um, by which time Calcutta will almost certainly be underwater, much like London, in fact, um, at least parts of the city will be underwater, thanks to global warming and climate change because Calcutta lies in the river delta close to the sea and is barely above sea level. Um, the, my, my character from the UK, who is now 65 and retired, he, he gets a message from the daughter of the lady that he had this non-relationship with. Uh, and the message says, can you please go back to Calcutta uh, and, and save my mother? She's drowning there. And if you can get her to England, um, she would really appreciate that. So he, he decides as a 65-year-old pensioner who actually had no more reason to go back to India at all to return on a military flight because there's no more civil flights thanks to economic collapse and, and the overtaking of the climate change. And he goes back and tries to save the woman. Yeah, yeah, we want to read and the book. Okay, easy on the spoilers. You yeah, don't that's exactly, ending, which is yeah, why I'm not going to uh... tell you any more than that. But I will tell you that um, Calcutta is partly underwater, um, pretty much like uh, Bangkok in 2011, when you right. had to get around by boat yeah. in the north and the east of the city. I don't know if you remember that. Uh, Don Juan yeah. Airport was completely underwater. And at the time, I, I was reporting on it. And I was in boats with the military going north of Don Juan. And, uh, you know, people were 
stealing ATMs on 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 wooden rafts and stuff. So I imagine Calcutta. Yeah, 2039 is quite a far away way too. So uh, I could see that kind of thing happening. Um, anyway, earlier we mentioned that you said the Thai people flew into Calcutta as like a launching point for other destinations. And I was looking at a Google map earlier just to, to kind of see what else was around in the area. Um, what are some of your favorite like day trip destinations or where are some other places that people could go to after visiting Calcutta? Uh, I should say first, Thai people, most Thai people who fly to Calcutta transit there for one or two nights and then fly on to Bodh Gaya, which is in Bihar, which is the, the mm. poorest most dicey state in northern India, but Bodh Gaya um, is, uh, I think, where the Buddha was enlightened. And there's many, many international temples there. The Japanese have built a lot of temples there. The Thais have built a bunch of temples there. So it gets a steady stream of of pilgrims. So usually when I fly from Bangkok to Calcutta, half the plane is, is dressed in white. Uh, these are all pilgrims that are going to Bodh Gaya. Um, other travelers might find um, different destinations in, in West Bengal, the, the state where Calcutta is located, very interesting. I mean, the most important and uh, famous of all, of course, is Darjeeling. That's in the north of the state. It's a, uh, a day trip, like a train and then a jeep from Calcutta. Um, it's home to a very incredibly famous tea industry. Um, so most of the tea that uh, we purchase in Europe or in Japan or in America uh, that comes from India is either from Darjeeling or Assam. It's it's a tea. Um, Hang on, you can get there in a day by train and stuff. Yeah, you take a train to Siliguri. That's a few hours, and then you take a jeep from there. It's a it's a it's oh, a. Oh, it looks day. like it's like six eight hundred kilometers away. Yeah, but you, I, I believe you can do it in a day. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And Darjeeling is also a hill station. So old British architecture at 2000 meters, which means the climate is very agreeable and you can do amazing walks through uh, the tea plantations. You can stay in some of the tea plantations. In fact, some years ago, I stayed uh, at Makaibari tea plantation and the owner of Makaibari tea plantation is a guy called Raja Banerjee. He was the man who at that time grew the world's most expensive tea which was $400 a kilo. And I believe now it's gone up to several thousand dollars a kilo for that tea. And it mm. does taste really, really amazing, but it kind of takes you a while. You know, it's, it's like one of these things with very, very expensive food where you think you try it the first time and you go, yeah, it's just tea, you know, it's just tea. But then when you drink it a few more times, you, it's called this particular kind is called silver tips. And it's picked only on full moon nights and only by women who don't menstruate. Of course. It's always the first samples free, right? And then it's always more expensive after that. <laughs> yeah. Huh. And, uh, and, and so, so yes, it's, it's, it's India's tea industry up there. So that's the, the, the best known place outside of Calcutta. But um, there's, there's also a university town three hours uh, out of Calcutta called Chantinetakan, which was founded by... Rabindranath Tagore, uh, an Indian writer who won the Nobel Literature Prize, I think in 1926, um, or even before that. But anyway, he was really into education, this guy, and he he started a, a kind of utopian university campus in this small town, um, which is still there to this day and teaches mostly arts and humanities. And um, there's, they also get quite a few foreign students. 
and the campus itself is really beautiful the town itself is also worth seeing but it is like the rest of india like all small towns in india it's becoming busier and dustier and there's more and more traffic so the original utopia of this man is is uh, to my mind is slowly disappearing but uh, certainly in the winter months this is also a great destination there are lots of indigenous villages around Shantinitakan where you can um, observe textile making and uh, they make brass figurines and all sorts of other sort of handicraft cottage industries that are absolutely fascinating. I, I mean, you've piqued my interest. I had no idea you could get to Darjeeling so quickly. And you know what, Tom? You've put Calcutta uh, on my radar. So kind of shifting back next to your writing, like what's next on your writing agenda? Is there anything more about India in there? Following the conclusion of the artist residency in Calcutta, the um, so basically what I did there, I wrote those three novellas, but in order to write the three novellas, I needed to get good insights into the city. And of course, I write crime fiction, so I felt I need to meet some criminals. And I was really, really lucky that I met uh, a young Indian writer, a guy called Orko Maitra, who lives in Calcutta, but who grew up in Singapore. And he himself is spending almost every evening at the uh, for the last year or so in the Calcutta underworld. And he mm. was really, really kind and said, I'll take you with me. So uh, basically for eight weeks, every night. It's like training day. It's like you should write the Indian training day. <laughs> <laughs> so for, for eight weeks, every night, he took me into the, let's say, the less salubrious parts of the city. And I met uh, hitmen. I met people who organized fight clubs. I met people who whatever, any uh, gamblers and all sorts of people who who um, who operate in the underworld, in, including quite a few professional assassins and people like that. And so I managed to take these characters and, and in some variation include them in my novellas. But then I was also thinking it would also be really good to tell the true stories of these people. So I went back to the Goethe Institute and I said, why don't you invite me back next year and me and my this young Indian writer Orko, we we will produce a story collection, non-fiction uh, of five or six fascinating marginal characters, but not helpless homeless people who are beggars in the street, but people who are doing something in that city. And uh, we will photograph them and write their stories, interview them at length, make little movies, and then create a website. Uh, with six of these portraits in a kind of interactive manner. Uh, and then we will commission other Indian artists, photographers and writers to, to contribute further portraits of Bengali people who are marginalized but not helpless. And the Goethe, Inst Goethe Institute uh, agreed to this and we set up the project. It's called Calcutta Noir. Hopefully you can share a lot of these links with us. I was going to mention earlier when we were talking about the maps, uh, if our listeners want to learn more about uh, Calcutta Noir or links to purchase any of your books or check out some Google Maps. I'm, I'm, I think we're going to talk to you afterwards about helping us put some pins on a Google Map so maybe you can... Uh, tell us maybe that neighborhood where people are waiting in line for some of that tasty Indian food that you mentioned. Uh, so if people go to talktravelasia.com, we'll have links to all of these things. And then people can follow what you're up to and, and learn some more about uh, some pretty interesting stuff. Absolutely. I'd be very happy to uh, 
to give you the individual lowdowns on the best places to hang out. Thanks, Tom, for joining us. Appreciate it, man. Scott and Trevor, it's been a pleasure, as always. Thank you for having me on the show again. And I just want to say once again, despite the reputation of this city, it's it certainly in the winter months, it's it's absolutely stunning. And it's got European winter. It's not like a, not like Bangkok. It's cold there in the winter. So for us expats living in Southeast Asia, it's really pleasant to be there in the winter months because you're actually a little bit cold. It goes down to 10 degrees at night, Celsius that is. So I would say um, it is my favorite city in the world. I know not everybody's going to share that sentiment, but go before the next elections in 2021 because if the government changes, um, there will be a lot of new development and all these old British buildings are just waiting to be knocked down and turned into concrete blocks. So it's, it's, it's the time is now to go and experience this incredible place. I have to say, Trevor, I mean, I knew the name Calcutta. I, of course, probably knew it because of Mother Teresa. Yeah. As we said earlier, I'm embarrassed to say I didn't know where in the country it was, but Tom has really, really piqued my interest, especially seeing as he said, you have to go by 2021. And it's not that far from Bangkok. Uh, it's a 20 hour train journey up to Darjeeling. So I feel like if you had a week, you could kind of spend a few days in the city, get up to the mountains and back. Yeah, I don't know, man. My, my friend Dan Honig once told me about some 20 hour train ride he did in India and it didn't sound really fun. But uh, Calcutta, if it's only like a $120 return ticket from Bangkok, man, like you live in Bangkok, I'd do that for a long weekend or something. You know, the city does sound fascinating. I like the fact that he tells us that it's a walking city, that it has a lot of this old colonial uh, architecture, um, that it's like the artistic heart of uh, India. Like he, he, we didn't get to talk about it on today's show, but uh, he mentioned doing something at an art gallery and it seems like they have a, a very vibrant art scene. So like it definitely sounds like uh, for those of us based here in Asia that could get there relatively quickly that it might be a cool place to go and check out. Yeah, like I said, I'm kind of peaked. You know, I, I went to Mumbai and it was pleasantly surprising when I was there years ago. Did enjoy it. Wasn't nearly as bad as I was thinking it would be. And yeah, I mean, it's one of the great things about this podcast now for me is that we're starting to talk to people and about things that I had no idea about. And before this evening, Calcutta definitely was not on my travel radar. And yeah, it, it's on there now, man. Like I think if just the timing and the planets aligned, I would I would jump on a plane and, and go check it out. Yep. And uh, it was great to have Tom on the show. He is a wealth of information about all sorts of things. I mean, his his writing experience, uh, whether it's uh, journalistic or fiction, um, he, he's a great writer, really insightful, very thoughtful guy. Uh, almost too much information that, that he shared with us today. Um, but uh, yeah, we hope to have him on the show again, just because uh, you know he, he has a lot of fascinating uh, experiences to share, and, uh, and I hope that he can share them again with our guests. So uh, thanks for listening. Um, if you want to donate to the show, we'd really appreciate that. Uh, you can go to Patreon and look up Talk Travel Asia, or you can go to our website, talktravelasia.com, and you can look for the little link that says donate. 
Uh, we have show notes on the website. Uh, we create Google Maps. We try and collect all these links for you. We're doing this as a hobby uh, for the love of travel, just to share this information with you. And if you appreciate it, uh, you know, for as little as a dollar a month, we'd, uh, we'd love for you to help support the show. So uh, thanks for listening. And uh, thanks, Scott, for, for restarting the podcast again with me. Yeah, thanks, man. It's a, it's a lot of fun to be doing this again. And uh, thank you for everybody that waited for us to come back. Hope you enjoy it. Do throw us a little financial love your way. And we'll be back in two weeks with another exciting edition of Talk Travel Asia. Thanks for joining us on Talk Travel Asia. We look forward to sharing with you again soon. Hey, Scott, do you remember the time we walked on top of the wall in Port Tom and Camp?